0: If you're uh, new with us, we are working our way through Luke's gospel uh, verse by verse. And in chapter 7, we started last week uh, answering the question that is presented to us in this chapter, uh, who is this Jesus? And last week we looked at Jesus being our Lord, uh, the Lord over sickness and death. And this week uh, we see the answer that he is the promised one, the long expected Messiah. And so let's pray and ask for the Lord's help as we jump in uh, to our text uh, this morning. Father, you tell us in your word that those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And today we want to seek you in your word. We pray that as we study your word today, we would not only have understanding, but your word would have an impression upon our hearts, uh, that it may change us from the inside out. And so come today and strengthen our faith as we study your word together in Jesus' good name, amen. Many years ago, while I was a a student uh, in New Orleans, I made my first ever visit to Starbucks. Uh, Distinctly remember uh, this moment where uh, me and some friends walked up to this Starbucks and I didn't know anything about the great big coffee world uh, at the time. I just drank Folgers out of a pot. And so I walked up and I simply said, I'll have a coffee please. And uh, the barista said, which kind? And I said, the strongest kind you have. And she said, do you want anything in it? And I said, no, just black. And in a few moments, this barista, well-intended, handed me an espresso. It was this tiny little cup. And she gave me this cup, and I was just staring at it. <laughs> like, really? This is what you have given me? And she was like, well, what were you expecting? And I said, well, I was expecting a full cup of coffee, uh, especially at this price. I mean, this is, this is kind of like coffee. It's, it's, it's black, it's, uh, it's hot it tastes a bit like coffee but that's not at all what i was expecting what were you expecting when it came to the messiah in john's day many had all sorts of expectations as to what the messiah would be like and what he would do most of the people expected jesus to roll in and defeat rome bring back israel to its glory days and usher in the kingdom And so Jesus is doing these various things in uh, the uh, first six, seven chapters of Luke, and the people are like, well, he's kind of like a Messiah. He kind of talks like a Messiah, but he doesn't meet my expectations of what the Messiah uh, would be like. And certainly no one seemed to have a category for a crucified Messiah. Jesus was not the Messiah everyone wanted. He was not the Messiah everyone expected, but he was the Messiah and is the Messiah that everyone needs. Now this subject that we're looking at today is very connected to Palm Sunday because when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the colt and the people were were declaring, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, not everyone in that crowd understood what kind of Messiah Jesus was. The disciples weren't even clear on what kind of Messiah he would be. And here we see an early example of messianic uh, uh, misunderstanding with John the Baptist this one who has been very bold and, and very faithful to declare the, uh, the coming of the Lord, now is raising some questions about whether or not Jesus is actually uh, the Messiah. You see in verses 19 and 20, twice the question is repeated, are you the one who is to come? So this text is very significant for us as we think about dealing with doubt. John here is the doubting prophet. And maybe you're here today and you have doubts. Maybe you're not a Christian, and you've got some questions. I want you to see that Jesus is not offended by your questions. And I want you to see that it's a good thing to learn from John in taking your questions to Jesus. Often people raise questions about the faith, but they don't really seek answers. Right, they, they just often, uh, you know, wanna get Jesus off of their minds, and so they use questions as sort of a defense mechanism. Right, you know, what about this and what about that? But if you truly have questions and truly seek answers, you're wise for doing so. But maybe you're a Christian and you have some doubts from time to time about the trustworthiness of scripture, about the reality of the resurrection. Maybe you have questions about how God seems to be working in your life or in the world. Where do doubts come from? Let me just briefly mention six sources. First of all, some doubt comes from Satan. We see this as early as the garden, don't we? When uh, the serpent appears to Eve and says, did God really say? Well, Satan is a liar. He hates Christ and his people, and he will bring doubt into our minds. Some doubt comes from one's desires. That is, some doubt uh, is sourced to an issue of morality for some people. What I mean by that is that some people don't want God to interfere with their choices, like sexual preferences so they start doubting everything theologically. They adjust their beliefs to justify their lifestyle. When the issue is really not about theology, it's about passion and desire. A third source of doubt is pain. Some doubt is tied to suffering. If you're going through a hard time, you may wonder about God's presence or God's goodness. And that's why we've always admired statements of faith in the Bible like when Job says, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him, yet I will hope in him. Or Habakkuk who says, even though there's no, there's no uh, 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 fruit on the vine and there's no cattle in the stall, yet I will rejoice in God my savior. Those are great statements of, of faith in the, in, the, in the face of pain. But often those doubts originate from one's experience of suffering, where is God and why am I dealing with this? A fourth source of doubt is disappointment very similar to the previous one, but some doubt comes when you are disappointed with God. You had certain expectations as to how God was going to work in your life and in, uh, in, in relationships and so on, and as the writer of Proverbs says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. When, you, when expectations are not met, you are are really uh, dealt with a blow of disappointment, which can uh, eventually lead to some significant doubt. That's that's a good bit of what John the Baptist is dealing with here in this text. He is disappointed that Jesus hasn't actually done all the things that he was declaring that Jesus would do. And so it's led him to a a, a time of questioning. Are you really the one who is to come? You're not alone in that experience. Now the Bible is filled with that. Just read the book of Psalms. (laughs) You can either live in the Psalms, or you'll be driven to the Psalms, um, eventually. And, and you see a number of, of, of Psalms where the Psalmists are questioning the, 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 the activity of God in their life. We call those laments. A third of the Psalms are laments. So again, be encouraged that you're not alone in that experience. Oh, one of those examples is in Psalm 73, the Psalm of Asaph, where he begins the Psalm by saying, truly God is good to Israel. And then he goes from creed to complaint and begins to wonder, why are the wicked prospering? And why am I not? And he he takes us down this whole rabbit trail of doubting the goodness of God. Have I followed God for nothing? And then he has a pivot point in Psalm 73 where he says, then I went to the sanctuary of God. He got a new set of lenses on life when he was in the presence of God, just as we do. And we see that, that their end is not good as asaph says well some doubt comes from spiritual maturity that's a fifth source of doubt those who don't have deep roots in the faith can often be swayed by persuasive false teachers and if one's faith remains immature then sometimes this doubt stems from being unable to answer opposing views and opposing questions we see this as students go away to school oftentimes as professors try to dismantle the faith and they don't know how to deal with it. They're tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And then finally, some doubt comes just as a result of spiritual drifting. And this is a very important one, I think. A lot of Christians don't drift uh, into doubt immediately, overnight. Often it comes with a slow drift. You stop reading scripture, you stop attending corporate worship, you stop being part of community, You fill your mind with media, and news, and movies, and then you find yourself participating in sin, and after a while, you're a long way from God, and you just sort of throw your hands up and say, well, I'm not sure I believe in any of that stuff anyway. This is what the writer of Hebrews talks about when he says, when he speaks of the deceitfulness of sin. Like, don't don't be led astray. Those are just six of many sources of doubt. Now, here's the good news, Jesus Christ, has a history of turning doubters into disciples. It's his specialty to turn doubters into disciples. There's a really famous one, right? We call him Doubting Thomas. He gets a bad rap this time of year. Uh, we should call him Believing Thomas uh, because he, he just had a healthy skepticism about him. And, and anything worth believing is worth questioning. And Thomas just doesn't go with everybody else and say, well, the other uh, you know, 10 are believing, I guess I'll believe he's like no i need to see him i don't i don't want a twin of jesus (laughs) no swap of the body i want to see him and then he gives the great confession as when he sees christ my lord and my god and jesus says blessed are those who haven't seen and still believe well luke's entire gospel in one sense is written to deal with your doubt you remember how it started in chapter one that he's writing these things for his friend, Theophilus, that he may have certainty regarding uh, the ministry of Jesus Christ. And so this is a good text for us to think about these things as we deal with doubt. And we see that Jesus is not offended by these questions. Jesus is so gracious to John. He could just blow up and say, what do you mean, am I the one? But, But he doesn't. He is very gracious. As we saw in chapter seven, verses one to 10, that Jesus was drawn to faith in this centurion and then he's drawn to grief in the widow who lost her son now we see jesus answering doubts and so the text is structured in this way verses 18 to 23 is john's question and jesus's answer and then in verses 24 to 30 jesus gives us a testimony about john not wanting us to get the wrong idea speaking about the greatness of john's ministry And then finally, in verses 31 to 35, Jesus speaks of the judgment upon Israel for rejecting both John and himself. And what I like to do is look at this text a bit more practically, centering around what Jesus says about doubt and belief. So here's how I want to roll today. First of all, there is the big idea in verses 18 to 23, Jesus is the promised one. Secondly, there are three big implications of this idea. First of all, those who believe in him are blessed. Secondly, those who believe in him are privileged. And thirdly, those who believe in him are wise. So let's, let's look at this together. First of all, Jesus is the promised one, verses 18 to 23. The disciples of John are uh, observing all that Jesus is doing, verse 18. We looked at uh, the healing and, and the raising of the son uh, last week. And they report all these things to John. And this, John's in a bit of a crisis. Um, Luke doesn't tell us, but Matthew tells us that John, this is an important point, is in prison right now. So he's in prison. And uh, we know eventually what will happen to John is he will be beheaded for uh, his preaching. And so John is here in prison and he's hearing about all of the things that Jesus is doing. And so they go report these things uh, to him and um, he sent them back to Jesus to ask, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Now we're not told exactly why John asked this question, um, but we're simply told uh, that he, he does ask the question. And if you've been tracking with us or you're familiar with the gospel, you may wonder like, man, this is the guy that was preaching boldly, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was the one preparing the way. How did he get to a point of doubting whether or not Jesus was actually the Messiah? And I think probably the answer to that is found back in chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, where we, first, we last read about John. And he says many things about Jesus. And then he says um, that his winnowing fork is in his hand, Jesus' hand, to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Jesus wasn't burning up any chaff yet. John had proclaimed a fiery judgment from our Lord, but it hasn't happened yet. And John is a guy who's kind of stuck in between the times, that this judgment will come later. But John, probably, this doubt is arising from the fact that now he's in prison, (laughs) and all that he knew Jesus would do hadn't happened yet. So are you really the Messiah? David Garland put it well. The terrible, swift sword that was to be laid at the root of the trees is turning out terribly slow. The only trampling that was getting done was on John's head. He was one captive that was not being set free. <laughs> Jesus is telling everybody, You're going to be set free. That the sword's going to come. I'm going to bring judgment. And John's like, My head's about to be chopped off. I'm stuck in this prison. This whole thing's moving terribly slow. And doubt really seeps into our hearts when we grow impatient with the Lord's timing. Everything seems too slow, doesn't it? Well, the men from John arrive, verse 21, and they find Jesus engaging in the healing of the sick and uh, liberating the demonized and giving sight to the blind and so on. You kind of wonder what these guys were like as they're sent by John. Did they go reluctantly? Uh, well you know Jesus I didn't really want to ask the question but um, or maybe you ask him why don't you ask him uh, I don't. And, and then they get there in verse 21 and Jesus is doing all these messianic things kind of makes you wonder you know did they regret asking the question <laughs> like are you the one who's to come and in that hour Luke says he does all these messianic things it's like Stephen Curry have you ever played basketball and he drains you know 10 40 footers in a row or uh, who's the golfer who's hot right now? Scotty Scheffler. Do you, do you play golf? And just one swing after another down the fairway. Hey, Jesus, are you really the Messiah? And then he's healing all of these people, doing all of these messianic things. And Jesus, then, after giving them sort of this visible illustration of his messianic identity, says, Go tell John this. Go tell him what you've both seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Jesus is is telling John that he's basically doing everything he said he would do in the Nazareth sermon, setting the captives free, preaching good news to the poor, liberating the oppressed. In fact, this outline in verse 22 is a good summary thus far of Luke, right? Uh, the, the, the sick are healed. That's an illustration or il- illustrated by Peter's mother-in-law who was healed. He casts out evil spirits, chapter 4 verse 31. He cleansed lepers, chapter 5 verse 12 and following. He made the lame to walk, five seventeen and 26. He raised the dead, the text we looked at last week. And with each new miracle we see more, with more and more clarity that he is the one who is to come. And Jesus is also using here at least four separate texts from Isaiah to give John his answer. One of them in Isaiah chapter 35. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. John would have undoubtedly thought of these passages when these words were reported back to him. Jesus is giving him biblical proof. He's saying, I'm doing the things that the Bible said that the Messiah would do. It's right there in your your Bible. And so do you believe that he is the promised one, the Messiah? Honest doubt is not a bad starting point, but it is a bad ending point. We have good reasons to believe. Jesus gives John good reasons, and he's given us even greater reasons, as we'll see in just a moment. So that's the big idea. Yes, John, I am the Messiah. I am the promised one. I'm doing the things that Messiah was promised that he would do. Now the implications. The first one, blessed are those, he says, who, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus solidifies his claim of being the Messiah with this little beatitude, a little statement of blessing on people who embrace him, those who are not offended by him. Happy are you, fulfilled are you, satisfied are you, if you are not offended by me. He's saying to John, John, rise above your doubts and put complete faith in me. And this is true for all of us. Blessed are you if you believe in him. Doesn't mean we won't have any heartache, doesn't mean we won't have any trials, or we won't even have any any doubts, but we're blessed. Blessed. Blessed are you, he says, if you're not offended by me. That's a very interesting thing for Jesus to say in this beatitude, isn't it? Offended, don't be offended by Jesus. The word that Jesus used here, "scandalon," is used in scripture to refer to something that prevents progress. It's the word, we get the word, uh, we, we translate stumbling block oftentimes. Blessed is the one who does not stumble over Jesus. What does he mean by this? Well, John is not making progress because he's stumbling over the way Jesus is at work in the world, right? So don't be offended by his style of ministry. Don't be offended by his means of accomplishing his salvation through the cross and resurrection and through a long period of patience before his return. Some are bothered by the way Jesus works, by the way Jesus works out his salvation, and he says, don't be offended at how I'm working. Don't be ashamed by the cross. You know, that, is, that has been one of the things that Christians have been mocked at for years of believing in one who died on a cross. Interestingly, the earliest known picture of a crucifixion comes from Rome called the Alex Minos Graffito, and the sketch is of a human figure on a cross, but the crucified head is the head of a donkey and a young man is beside the cross looking at the crucifixion, and the the mocking caption says, Alex Menos worships his God. Let's not be offended by our Lord. As Luther put it well, no other God have I but thee, born in a manger, died on a tree. There is no other savior. There is no other hope of salvation. Let's not be offended by him. Let's not be ashamed of him. Let's trust in the way he's working in this world. And we need to be reminded here of John. We paint him in the proper light, I think, as we put all the details together that we see John eventually finished well. Yeah, he had a time in which he had some questions, but eventually his head was cut off for preaching the truth. Think about that. Your whole ministry is marked by faithfulness, and then you're beheaded. I got a lot of problems today, but I have my head right now, right? Why? Because he's he's telling uh, one who is in authority, it's unlawful for you to have your brother's wife. And John is put to death. And we see that the disciples go get the body, they bring the body to Jesus. We may be perplexed at times, but we are blessed if we continue trusting in Jesus as John did. We find him sufficient for everything we need in the highs and lows of life. We know that one day our faith will end in sight and there will be no shadow of a doubt that he is the Messiah, right? As we see him for as he is. After all, he's the one who can put John's head back on. He's the one that will restore all things and we're more blessed than we've ever dreamed in Jesus Christ. Secondly, those who believe in him are privileged. Verses 24 to 30. This is similar to the previous implication, but it's teased out a little bit as Jesus clears up any miscommunication that we might have about John. And he uh, says, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowd. So he wants the crowd to know something about Jesus, or about John, rather. And he says, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. Now Jesus, Jesus says, um, when you guys went out to the wilderness to hear John, why did you go out there? Did you go out to look at reeds? <laughs> like, Did you just bump into your buddy? Hey, what are you doing on a Tuesday? Oh, not much. Well, let's, let's take a lunch and let's go look at some reeds. You've got to be really bored, right? Or disturbed to do that sort of thing. Nobody's going out into, uh, to, for a sightseeing trip. Uh, to stare at Reed's? Or did you go out to look at John's fashion? <laughs> did you go out to see what this guy uh, w- was dressed like? He was hardly a fashion model, right? You know John's appearance. He was not bougie, he was beastly. You didn't, you didn't go out there to, to, to see John's uh, Jordan 1 sandals, um, right? Why did you go out to the wilderness to see uh, John? Because of his preaching, because he was unique. He was steadfast. He wasn't fickle like a reed. No. He rebuked Herod for marrying the wife of his brother. People didn't go out to see John for his fashion. They went out to see and hear his fiery preaching. And people flocked to see John because, as Jesus says in verse 26 and 7, he's more than a prophet. John was the prophet prophesied about. And that makes him really unique. He's unique in where he stands in redemptive history, and he's unique in that he was foretold in places like Malachi chapter three, verse one, which Jesus highlights. And he says that John had a privileged role. He introduced people to the Messiah. So he says in verse 28, among those born of woman, not counting Jesus himself, none is greater than John, which on the surface is a very striking statement, isn't it? Sorry, Alexander the Great. Sorry, Caesar, Moses, Abraham, it's the locust-eating prophet, the greatest man who's ever lived, the one who had that bohemian vibe, who, who loved Whole Foods. He's the greatest of all the people who've ever existed in history. Well, that's something, isn't it? What do we make of that statement from Jesus? Well, I think Jesus here is speaking about John's role, not John's essence. It's not that he's necessarily greater in character than Jeremiah, Isaiah, or Moses, or any other biblical hero, but he's greater in that he had this privilege. He introduced people to the Messiah. John's greatness came in getting people ready for God's salvation, and he completed that task. And I think that's accurate based upon what he says next. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. That is because we live on this side of the resurrection. John, you might say, though it it, it strikes as kind of funny, is the last of the Old Testament prophets. He appears here in the Gospels, of course, but he is the final one that will point Jesus, point us to to the Messiah, the last prophet who will do that. John, unlike the Old Testament prophets, saw Jesus with his own eyes and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. all the others before then just saw this shadowy likeness of Christ, but John saw him personally. And then Jesus says something stunning, doesn't he, in verse 28, second part of verse 28? Those who believe are greater than John. Now again, I think this is not in terms of essence, it's in terms of privilege. It's in terms of where we fit in the redemptive timeline. Disciples on this side of the cross and resurrection Think about it, actually no more than John. We now point to people, point people to Jesus with even greater clarity than John. That's because we have a full revelation. We live in the new covenant and we are privileged. John, you see, was on the hinge of human history. But the most obscure believer in the age of fulfillment is greater than John. In terms of privilege, you're greater than anybody who existed in the old covenant. The greatest of the old era is not equal to the position of the lowliest in the new covenant. And that's why we read texts like uh, 1 Peter that prophets and even angels long to look into this gospel. Those in the new covenant have more privileges than the one who announced the coming of this covenant. An illustration from Ralph Davis is helpful. He says, Susan B. Anthony worked avidly for women's suffrage in the United States. She died, however, in 1906, 14 years before the 19th Amendment was adopted. She campaigned for women's rights to vote, yet never enjoyed the privilege herself. She was, I suppose we could say, very great in the suffrage movement, and yet a post-1920 Northwestern Iowa farm wife was greater than Susan B. Anthony because she enjoyed the privilege of voting. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you own a bundle of privileges. Don't think you haven't been given anything. You've been given everything. You are more privileged than Isaiah, Jeremiah, and John the Baptist. You have been forever united to Jesus Christ. You've received the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit enabling you today to cry out, Abba, Father. You have access to the very throne room of God. You're part of the priesthood of all believers. You can take people to God in prayer and God to people in evangelism. You know the hope of the glory that is to come. It's hard for us to fathom how privileged we are Daryl Bach put it well when he says it's not hard to think that it would be would have been great maybe even better to have lived in an era when God was mightily at work to have crossed the sea with Moses or seen Elijah defeat the prophets at Mount Carmel but Jesus is clear that as as great as the former times were as great as John the Baptist was nothing before that time matches what Jesus offers if Moses and the prophets could speak they would say that they long for these days they would gladly have traded places with us. That is how special it is to share in the salvation that Jesus brings. Those who believe in him are privileged. After speaking of John this way, Jesus then um, talks about how some of the people have responded rightly to John and himself. And again, there's some surprises as to who responds well. Notice the uh, parenthetical comment. When all the people heard this, And the tax collectors too, I love that phrase. The tax collectors, they're getting in on this salvation. They declare God to be just. What they're saying is God's ways are right. They they are not objecting to how God has chosen to work out his plan of salvation. They declare God to be just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. They followed the, the plan of God the purpose of God, but the Pharisees, the people, the religious leaders that you think would respond rightly to the coming of the forerunner and the coming of the Messiah and the lawyers, they reject the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Because of their pride, because of their self-righteousness, because they believed they knew how God would work in the world, they had rejected the purposes of God and therefore didn't experience these privileges but those who are the least in the kingdom, those who have embraced Jesus as Messiah, have a bundle of privileges to rejoice in today. Jesus is the promised one. Those who believe in him are blessed. Those who believe in him are privileged. And thirdly, those who believe in him are wise. Verse 31. Jesus now, still talking to this crowd, reflecting upon the statement that uh, he, he has just made, looks around at the present generation and says, what are they like? And once again, Jesus, it's a great way of illustrating, such a vivid uh, teacher, says, they are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, we played the flute for you and you did not dance, the Baptist group. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. (laughs) I thought about this text last week, I was walking through my neighborhood, uh, Sunday evening, listening to Alistair Begg preach on this passage, and I had on the corner three guys selling lemonade, three little kids, and I walk around another corner and it was it was like four girls doing uh, cheerleading stunts, and uh, the cheerleading girls where it wanted me to uh, watch their presentation. And so, you know, I, I, I did that, and, and the, the, the lemonade guys were selling no lemonade. I mean, business was tough uh, in the neighborhood. And I was just like, just wait till you have to pay for gas, guys. It, it gets worse. Um, you know, so it was like a dirge on one corner, and it was, it was a party uh, on the other corner. And Jesus says, some who have not accepted me, they're kind of walking back and forth to both games, both uh, activities, and they're not satisfied with either of them. Some call this the parable of the brats, right? You know, the kids get together and one group says, hey, we wanna play wedding. No, we don't play that. And you got another group over here that says, we want to play funeral. No, we don't wanna play that. And Jesus says, that's what I liken this generation too. They're not satisfied with either John the Baptist or me. John comes as an ascetic, one who practiced great self-denial. And instead of saying, well, that's a holy guy, they say, he's got a demon. We, we don't want to play the funeral thing. Or you look to me and you say, well, John is weird, but the Messiah, Jesus, he's too wild. They don't like weird John or wild Jesus. They say, look at him, because of his associations, because of the fact that Jesus would hang out with the riffraff of the day, how do they label Jesus? They, they say, well, he's, he's a glutton and a drunkard. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. Well, he's not a drunkard and a glutton, but praise God, he is a friend of sinners. And he's saying, this generation have looked at John and they've dismissed him. They don't want to play that game. They looked at Jesus and dismissed him and said, we don't want to play that game. And Jesus summarizes it by saying, wisdom is justified by all her children. Wisdom is revealed in those who respond to God in his ways and on his terms. God in his wisdom has sent John as a forerunner to Jesus the Messiah and those who follow him are shown to be wise. The tax collectors and sinners and everyone who gets in on this good news show that they're wise. Wisdom sees God's ways and walks in those ways. You can tell a good decision by the fruit of the decision, can't you? And if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, you are wise and you will see amazing things, believer. Those who believe are wise. So, is Jesus the promised one? Yes, he is. And this morning, church, he's worthy of all of our trust. Worthy of all of our belief. If you're in a period of questioning or doubting, I pray that your faith would be strengthened today. I was reading this morning, 2 Thessalonians 1, where Paul tells the church, I thank God that your faith is growing abundantly. May our faith grow abundantly today as a result of looking at this, knowing that one day our faith will end in sight. And in the meantime, let us not doubt Jesus' identity and let us not doubt his care for us. Paul says, God proved his love in this way, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrated it, he proved it. Lest we doubt his care for us, we only need to look to the cross today. As Ortland put it, in the death of Christ for sinners, God intends to put his love for us beyond question. His love is beyond question for us. How do we know this? Because the cross happened. And that's why Paul would say, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? If he's going to do the big thing in giving us Christ, he's going to take care of us all the way to glory. He didn't redeem us to leave us. He's redeemed us to walk with us, to conform us to his image and see to it that this salvation, this plan, this work is brought to completion. Let's trust him until we see him. You are blessed if you do. You are privileged if you do. And you are wise if you do. Father, we thank you today for your word. We pray that you would build us up in our most holy faith today to know that Jesus is all that we have ever longed for, that he is the expected one, the promised one. And in him we find life and we find salvation. And we pray that today you would strengthen our faith, that you would make us faithful messengers like John continued to be, Lord, to to point people uh, to our Messiah. And Lord Jesus, we um, come to the Lord's Supper today knowing that this is one of the ways that we are reminded not only of, of your identity but of your care for us. Because of what you have done for us, we, we should never doubt your love and your care. And we bless you today. We pray that worship would arise in our hearts. And we pray this in your good name. Amen.